If you're listening to this episode while scrolling through your phone, we want you to stop and pay attention. This episode, after all, will be all about attention, how we use it, where we spend it, and why some people are so good at pulling attention towards them, be it good or bad. We want to thank Charlie Warzel at the New York Times for bringing this week's guest to our attention. We are thrilled to speak with Michael Goldhaber because how often do you get to connect with a visionary human being who totally nailed the destructive forces of social media and the fight for people's attention all the way back in the 1980s and 1990s when we were talking about the Xerox copy machine? Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to dismantle systemic racism. We're your biracial hosts, Sarah and Misasha. I was recently on a webinar with a bunch of newsletter writers who were talking about how to make something successful. And they were talking about the attention economy, which I thought was really exciting, right? You know, it used to be that we had way more time and wanted something to fill up our time. Right. And now with like the internet and technology, all of that extra time has just been sucked right up. And so it feels like a totally different thing now to fight for people's attention. And this is something that you called like years ago. Yes. I first came up with the idea of the attention economy actually in about 1982 or 83 when there was no internet. But what there was, was a glut of information. People were talking about that. There were at that time things like faxes, People were beginning to use personal computers. I don't think there was even email yet, or if there was, it was very limited. But there were Xerox machines. People were churning stuff out. There was already a sense there was too much information for people to absorb. And I began to ask, why so much information? And the problem that I saw was information isn't scarce. There's already too much of it. So why are people producing so much more? And I realized if you turn it around, the answer was sort of obvious. For every bit of information, the hope is that someone pays attention to it. And through, I think, through paying attention to whatever the information is, in some ways paying attention to you as a person, whether it's simply because you think this is significant and you want other people to think that, or whether you're being sort of more narcissistic and the, the information isn't really the point, but just getting the attention is. And I also realized back then pretty quickly, every baby absolutely would die without attention. It's the one thing they're capable of getting possibly that then everything else comes from. And as we grow up, I think most of us keep liking getting attention. Some of us for different reasons get turned off by the idea of getting attention or are too shy too afraid they're getting the wrong attention or something like that. But a lot of people really love attention. So now if you fast forward to the internet, suddenly we're in a world where everybody with internet access has a way to get the attention of everybody else, or at least hopefully get the attention of everybody else. So suddenly we're in a world where you can literally get the attention of billions of people and that's just incredibly desirable for those who can hope to get it or try to get it. And what it leads to is an enhanced competition for everybody else. And then you have 
everybody trying to get your attention at every minute almost lots of people are people who tweet people on facebook so when i wrote the things i wrote in the 90s there was no facebook there was no twitter there was nothing exactly like that but what they've done in their own ways is set up wonderful attention engines because they tell you how many followers you have they tell you Every time there's a like for something you write, and it's extremely easy to give a like, or if you post a picture, it's extremely easy to like, it's extremely easy to comment, it's extremely easy to share. So there are all these ways to check how much attention you're getting and for everyone else to see how much attention you're getting. And so in a way that democratizes it, but it also means the competition grows and grows and people find that some people can get a huge amount of attention by constantly saying something new and different. I'm so excited to talk about what you said, the people's motivation, whether they're narcissistic or it's for the content, but also how that impacts our society with inequality. But before we get there, people are going to be like, who is this person who is speaking? Because two things, you're a former theoretical physicist and you had these you know, understanding and the foresight to see these patterns, but you're also one of the people who don't have an online profile. I mean, Misasha here is super into online privacy as well. You've just stepped into having a blog and a Twitter account. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and introduce yourself and tell us sort of what keeps you busy and what's led to your participation again in these sorts of conversations? Okay, right. I grew up in a family of physicists, a very unusual family, both my mother and father and my aunt and uncle were physicists. And uh, I became one, got a PhD in it at Stanford, actually, which was, you know, almost pre-Silicon Valley. It was a long time ago. And it was during the Vietnam War. And that got me interested in the way science and technology were being used for malign purposes, as I saw it, namely, all kinds of electronics being used in the war and so forth. And so one of the first things I did after my PhD was help found something originally called Scientists and Engineers for Social and Political Action. And that became known as Science for the People, and it was quite active, and it was active in many fronts, including anti-racism, anti-sexism, and, and all sorts of things of that kind at a very fundamental level, saying that, you know, our genes do not describe who we are. There are no such things as races, and there's no such thing as IQ, really, all sorts of things like that. Anyway, about 10 years after that, I got interested in how exactly technology was influencing society in more subtle ways. And that got me interested in eventually what are known as information technologies, in that case, the early microprocessors. Through that, I got interested in information, wondering why there was such a glut of it. And so I worked on that for a long time in various guises once I came up with the idea of the attention economy. And then I found myself a kind of an odd position in that it was very hard for me to get other people to understand what I meant about the attention economy. It sort of fell between stools, it seemed to me. And so I wrote some pieces about it and felt that I had done what I could at that point. So 
Over the last dozen years or so, I spent a lot of time writing a novel, which hasn't been published. And uh, then I uh, got interested in the question of the nature of human consciousness and the human mind. And I spent most of the last few years studying philosophy of mind and then the, to some extent how animals other than humans experience consciousness and things like that. And so then sort of out of the blue, somehow I was found by the New York Times. So out of that, I have gotten a little bit more publicity and even some more Twitter followers. I was on Twitter and on Facebook for years and have very few followers, and that was fine with me. I was not really pushing that much for more. I'm one of the people who somewhat has a mixed attitude still to getting attention. It's like, uh, well, I know one source of it, really, in my case, is that my parents were refugees from the Nazis, and they were sort of terrified of being politically open about anything because somehow the image of Nazis coming down on you was just too strong. And so we, my father especially, really wanted to keep a very low profile about opinions. And I think I've still taken some of that in, but it's quite contrary to the main spirit of these times, I think. You know, you um, talked about the New York Times piece, which is what Sarah and I both read too. And we're like, we really need to speak to him because that was an amazing piece and described some of what we had been talking about. For a lot of our listeners who may not have read that amazing piece, can you give you know a 50 word or less description of the attention economy and how it works? Or maybe that's too concise. What would you say? I'll try. I mean, any economy involves obviously connecting people to each other in some way. Otherwise, it's not really an economy. Secondly, it involves the allocation of something that's scarce. But the scarce thing also has to be desirable. If it's not desirable, people won't care if it's scarce. So attention fits all those goals in a way, or it can now, especially because of the internet. That is, people want attention, there's a limited amount ability to pay it that each of us has. I mean, some of us might be able to, you know, read a book and engage in a conversation at the same time, but even that is pretty scarce. You know, we really all have our limits, whatever they may be. So there's only so much we can pay attention to. And yet attention is highly desirable and there's no limit in a way to how much attention one person can have. So that means as we're all drawn together through things like the internet, which connects billions of people worldwide, we're all in a competition for attention. We can choose to ignore it, but many of us cannot. So that's the basis. Uh, let me add one more thing that I think is kind of important. Imagine you're in an audience uh, sitting in a room with, let's say, 100 other people, and somebody's up on stage that person appears to have the attention of everyone in the audience and probably does have it. And that sort of enlarges them, makes them more important. And then if they're very good at speaking, they look as if paying attention to you. In reality, they may not know you exist, but you have the illusory feeling, I call it, or as I put it, illusory attention from them that somehow combines the whole audience that they have and all of that 
seemingly going to you. And I think anybody who is very successful at getting attention has that ability to give the sense that they are paying attention to each of their audience members. And, you know, often, just to say one more thing, this is not completely new. I mean, you can read a book and the author has been dead for 300 years, and yet it still seems they're paying attention to you. So, you know, plenty of people who, who are no longer alive still get attention in a way. And that, in a certain sense, lessens what's there for everyone else which just increases the competitive aspects of it. So then say attention economy is sort of this, the way you said it was not quite a zero-sum game and that there is that illusory feeling of it coming back around. But at the same time, there's very real effects of the attention economy. And one of them that you talked about was, you know, how the attention economy might deepen inequality. How does it do that? Well, I mean, imagine living in a village a few hundred years ago, which practically everybody did, you might know everybody in the village and they would all know you and you would be getting a little bit of attention at least. And now you're in a situation where some people get a billion people's attention or or a million or even only a thousand, but not everybody is going to be able to get that attention. And so, you know, in terms of real attention that comes to you as a person and pays attention to your needs a lot of people are going to be left out. And in a way, I mean, everybody who's ever been to elementary school has some of that feeling, I think, that, you know, some people kind of pull all the air in the room, as one says, or all the oxygen. And other people just don't get much attention and feel rejected in some way very easily. You know, going back again to the classroom, there's the attention that you get for being a a good student and raising your hand. And there's the attention you get from being the class clown or the class person who acts out in some way or another. And then there's everybody else. Well, that's only with, I don't know, 30 people or so in the classroom. But instead, you're in a world where most of the time, some people are getting the attention, as I said, of so many more it's very easy to be left out, to feel you're not heard, to feel that your needs, not necessarily your needs for anything physical like food or air or something like that, but your needs for just attention and acknowledgement from other people is very much limited. And we all, or many of us find ourselves in that situation quite often. But we talk a lot about mattering and how people need to feel like they matter And the way we talk about it is that it's like a fundamental part of fighting racism, which makes people both individually and systematically feel like they either do or do not matter. And I think that if people don't get attention, obviously, it's easy to feel like we don't matter. And I think about, like you just said, with the children in the classroom, but how do we wrestle with people's fundamental need to matter and how cyberspace has almost corrupted this idea of attention from loved ones, like real people in our lives, a sense of being valued and instead prioritizing 15 seconds of fame from strangers in cyberspace. Well, it is very hard to reconcile that. And, you know, I have been trying to struggle with that recently in terms of saying more about it, because I think, you know, we do face this basic inequality and people do try in all sorts of ways to get attention, even for very mundane things. They show what they cook for dinner, on Facebook, for example, and they get a lot of likes for that or something like that. But there are plenty of people who 
just through the algorithms of Facebook and so on and so forth, don't even get very much of that. And, you know, if you can't think of something funny to say, or you can't think of something really nasty to say, let's say on Twitter, people might not notice whatever you do say. And so for an ordinary person or somebody who's perhaps not that articulate or not that capable of expressing their fundamental self in very uh, artful ways, it can become extremely hard to get the attention that you want. And it's certainly true. And we all know this, that, for example, you know, I still see this on my Twitter feed, the limited number of people I have on it saying things like, you know, I spoke up at a meeting, a woman saying this, I was at a meeting, I said the same thing seven times, nobody took any notice. And then the man sitting next to me said the same thing and got a lot of praise. So there's always been this, I think always, but it's even more excessive now, this in an unwillingness, basically, to pay attention to just anyone. And, and then there are stereotypes, of course, that, you know, people just don't notice you as an individual, notice what you look like, or how you're dressed or something like that. And they don't pay attention. And how to get beyond that, I think, is a very big effort. Because one thing you can't do is say, you know, if it comes to economics, you could say, well, we'll send everybody $1,400 or whatever it might be, which helps equalize people in terms of money, a tiny little bit at least. But we can't say, we're going to make it a law that you have to give everybody equal attention. It just wouldn't work because you're still going to pay attention to people who, for one reason or another, strike you in a very unequal way. So, what I think we might start doing, and this is a, a long-term project to put it mildly, is just focus on the value of each person and saying to oneself, you know, each person has to start saying, I am going to give attention to those around me, to those who I see, whoever they are, whatever their difficulty or inability to get attention. And that's going to be very hard, but I think it's a necessary thing to try to work on. And in that light, one more thing I can say is, you know, that I've been thinking about mostly in terms of politicians is people need to feel that you're paying attention to them. And one way to do that is truly to be sincere, truly to say what you're feeling and be honest about the world and about who you are and about what they may or may not understand about you and about what you're trying to talk about. That's very, very hard. I think that's enormously difficult, but I think that's the direction that we need to try to individually and in groups somehow encourage people to do. Yeah, I really like that. I have a question then as to how or if you think that's possible to do that through social media and the internet, right? Because right now we have Facebook, right? And all of its issues, we have Instagram and its algorithms. You know, I'm not on these platforms even because of the work that I do in privacy. You know, I'm very cautious, but now we have social audio. We have a million apps that ask for our attention. Our kids are now, you know, focused on online gaming as a way to stay connected. And that has its own attention economy, which has been explained to me by my six-year-old, which is terrifying. <laughs> but, 
you know, so I'm wondering, we have all these out there. Our kids are in this world that we didn't grow up in with the internet and all of these right away. But if we're trying to make that shift, is there a, a place for then social media and the internet in shifting how we use attention? Well, I think there's some place. I think it's obviously a long-term struggle, but I mean, if we are using these social media we can begin to put these ideas out. We can begin to notice when other people are being neglectful of some of their supposed friends and things like that, or members of their family and things like that. We can begin to try to just develop a different ethos and to some degree model it. It's not easy, but I think that would be a way that we could go. And you know, when we think of these media, it's very easy, and I've certainly done this, to think of how, you know, the idea of saying whatever you want and focusing on some really weird ideas like QAnon or something like that has been out there. But but also at the same time, sort of the resistance to President Trump started a really made a lot of use of social media. And it was more successful, you could say, in the end. I haven't looked at studies to know the extent of it, but I think the reason that Biden won the election by so many more votes than anyone has ever gotten in the U.S. is a sign that, you know, there is a sense of recognizing sincerity in a way. I mean, I feel that was one of the things he had to offer is that compared with many other politicians, at least, he honestly does feel other people's pain. It's not just a statement that he makes. And you could see that. And to some extent, I think we shouldn't ignore the positive possibilities of the medium, but we have to extend it. And I think we need to think also a lot harder about democracy and how that can change. I mean, as you may know, for example, in a few years, supposedly, 30% of the people will have 50% of the representation in the Senate in this country. We have a constitution that has never really paid attention equally to everyone and very much still does not. And that's going to be a considerable struggle over the next few years, I think. It would have occurred in some ways, I guess, even without the internet. But I don't think we should just say, well, let's abandon these tools because they're tools that are so corruptible. We, we have to develop others, but I think we have to use those too. You know, I think we have to try to imagine how we can have a more responsive sort of democracy where people have some ways of saying what they really want and not simply being told, you know, okay, sign this petition, which is pretty much meaningless, but it has to go somewhere beyond that. I don't know how, but I think that's something we have to develop and can develop, I believe, I hope, at least. Me too. <laughs> when you were talking about politics and democracy too, and President Trump and President Biden, and, you know, it makes me think about the last four or five years and how we've seen attention being, you know, positive, right? But also the value and the drive for this sort of negative attention, right? Any publicity is good publicity. Any attention is good attention. And so how do you put value on that, those two competing types of attention? Well, I mean, again, 
you know, when I was first thinking about this, I soon learned that, for example, serial killers get fan mail. They're in jail already. They've been convicted and they get offers of marriage. They get people painting their portraits, just amazing amount of stuff. And, you know, you can't be more negative and horrible than that in a way, but it's just absolutely true that we all have some kind of dark side in ourselves, I think. You know, every child at some point gets angry at its parents and wants them dead or or something like that, even if it's only for a minute. And that can be activated by this, you know, just acting snarky, acting, lying deliberately, there's something that people find appealing about someone who can get away with so many lies, even in the case of President Trump. So how do we combat that? I think, again, it's one of these hard things. It's, it's a question of, and it's a very hard one in, in the society because so little attention goes to people who always do the right thing. And, you know, we have to find ways of valorizing and noticing when people do act with humility, with caring for others, with even little small things better than we do. And then again, that's going to be a struggle, I think, because, you know, it's so easy to just lie and and get attention. Or, you know, as Trump did very early in his presidency, I want to say a little bit more about him because I think he's so interesting. You know, I don't know how much you've followed his career for decades, but the fact of the matter is he just has a certain genius for getting attention that he's used for years. And, you know, he did things like pretending he was his own publicist when he didn't have a publicist and, you know, making sure he got on page six of the New York Post for affairs and anything it didn't matter what. And he knew that putting up his name on everything and lying very consistently for a very long time, not even reading the books he supposedly wrote. And I think he was just an absolute master at figuring out how to use just constantly being there, constantly exaggerating his own capabilities, constantly insulting other people and things like that. He got some of that from Rush Limbaugh, I think, but he also developed it himself. And there are all these people, I believe, who voted for him, who basically feel neglected. Whether they should feel neglected is another question, but they do. Sometimes that people look down on them rather directly. It could be managers where they work. I mean, somebody could be 50 years old working in some industry where they're really quite good at what they do. And then somebody who's 27 and comes along with an MBA basically says to them, you have to do it my way because I know what I'm doing and you're not smart enough to know what you're doing. When the reality is they actually know much more about what they're doing. So I think it's very easy to take those people who feel neglected, sometimes justly because they're not very nice people and sometimes not at all justly and just pull them behind somebody like Trump. And that's what he did so well. And then they enjoy it. They enjoy seeing him get all this attention. They they definitely feel that they're part of his 
crowd and that when he's getting attention, they're getting attention. And so that's what was going on then. Totally right. In terms of like, because then all of a sudden we have Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, like you do have new examples, even in Congress now, about people who seem to be operating in this way. If attention is in fact a zero-sum game, our attention that we're giving to people like Trump or these new representatives who anybody who wants this attention gets it kind of thing, it does take it away from other people. So what do you think in your observations that we as a society are paying attention to right now? And so what are we therefore then missing out on in society? Well, of course, it's a very complicated thing. I think we miss out on an incredible amount in terms of, well, the list is just too huge, but going down the list of tremendous social inequality, economic inequality in the old sense, attention inequality in the new sense, which tends to go together to some degree, at least, people having, you know, been ignored for centuries because of their skin color or their condition of slavery or their lack of enough education and so forth, that being extended now. And obviously, every kind of thing like endangered species. And I mean, it's very difficult to find a topic where there isn't, in fact, some kind of organization now that says you have to give more attention to this. For instance, right here in Berkeley yesterday, there were animal rights people lying down on the horse racing track, and they were then accused of trying to oppose vaccination, which was going on nearby. But, you know, there are people who are absolutely dedicated to animal rights and so forth, and everything in between. I think at some level, you could say there's just so much we're not paying enough attention to. I mean, people are not learning how to read well enough for example, when they people are not learning history well enough to know what the country has been and so forth. And they're ignoring how problems could be rectified, but are not being. So I think it's easy for politicians, even supposedly well-meaning ones, to take advantage of the concerns, for example, about endangered species or about environmental things without really planning to do at all enough about it to make any difference. And a lot of people, I think, or at least judging by my email feed, I gave money to a bunch of political candidates in the last election. And as a result, I still am unsubscribing from virtually infinite numbers of emails that are often tremendously insincere. It's, you know, these are the people I like. And the people I supported, like I was for Elizabeth Warren and in the running for president. But, you know, when I look at her emails, even hers, there's something often disingenuous. She didn't write them herself. Somebody else did and so on and so forth. And for us to be able to see behind the veil and not get just completely turned off by the fakery of the people sending out the emails who always want more money, always want you on more lists, always pretend that you should sign this petition, which, you know, for these petitions, for the most part, go nowhere. I don't know whatever happens to them, but they're not real democracy. They're fraudulent democracy, it seems to me. And just developing genuineness, I mean, I'm sort of repeating myself, but I think that is one thing we have to do. And 
You know, I certainly see plenty of young people, for instance, concerned about the environment, concerned about guns, concerned about sexism in all sorts of ways and sexual abuse and, you know, freedom for people who have alternative self-definitions and things like that. That's certainly existing, but it's still very hard for it to be strong enough to really reach other people. And, you know, I just don't know how well we could do that. I mean, it's a very diverse country. It's a very, in a certain sense, isolated and separate country and maybe too large a country. (laughs) I mean, it strikes me that in some ways Canada does better because it's a tenth the size or something. And, you know, we are, except for India, very much the largest democracy and they're falling apart as a democracy. How we continue, I don't have all the answers on that. I was going to ask you a very theoretical question to follow that up on. Yeah, I think Sarah will get to the practical right after I ask a very theoretical one, which is very much our personalities, by the way. So, you know, you mentioned that your parents, right, having experienced Nazism and authoritarian rule had a very different view about attention and, you know, the role of attention and the dangers of attention, really, in that you're not, you know, necessarily trying to stand out. Sarah and I have talked a lot about forms of government, I think, and have thought a lot about that. And authoritarianism, you have, right, the attention seeker, total, you know, head who controls that. And if you're standing out for the wrong way, you get pushed down. And we have talked about sort of socialism and how attention might work in more what, you know, we consider to be socialism, which a lot of Americans consider to be a bad thing. But we see it as, you know, slightly different than that. And I know you were just talking about the complications of our democracy and, you know, how attention hasn't worked so far, how that the inequalities are there. So sorry it's for the multi multi part of my question, but prior to this too, you were talking about how attention could work, right? And how we could tie each other together and support each other. So given all of those things that I just laid out, do you think that an attention economy and a democracy can coexist in a structural form, like assuming it's best versions? Well, that's a really hard question and a deep question. So thank you for asking it. But I don't know that I can give a full answer. But what I think is that an attention economy where there's a lot of emphasis on recognizing the intrinsic inequalities and trying to find ways to cope with that can work. I mean, no democracy has ever been perfect. Certainly, American democracy has not been. One thing that I think we can point to positively about the attention economy is that some people who otherwise would not have had a voice at all can have a voice to describe their own predicament and their own problem and to let people know about it. And to some extent, I think we do see that even with things like uh, the Me Too movement and, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, things that would not have coalesced within the attention economy, because one thing that people can point to is how egregious other people's behavior has been at times, whether it's the police or whether it's, uh, you know, politicians or Harvey Weinstein or, or whoever it might be. I think there is a way that 
it can be part of democratization. And, you know, I don't know if you were involved in this at all back in, uh, I guess it was about 2009 or something like that, when Twitter was just getting started and there was a kind of uprising in Iran that was based a lot on the internet and based a lot on the attention economy in a way, which was fighting against the dictatorship in a way that exists there. You know, people were very, very hopeful at that time that it would be a big tool for democracy. Now, one reason it didn't turn out to be that, of course, is that governments began to sanction it and began to restrict it. So, and China, as you may know, is extremely successful at doing that and wants to have the ability essentially to know what every single person is doing all the time and so forth. I think that ultimately will be, I mean, I'm hoping, I guess I should say that that ultimately will prove to be so restrictive that people will fight against it. As you may know what's happening in Burma right now, if I may use the old name for it, uh, Myanmar, it's, in that case, it's women in the forefront. And of course, they've tried to cut off the internet tremendously, but they haven't completely been successful with that. And, you know, I think it's just very time consuming and attention consuming to pay, to notice what's going on elsewhere in the world, to, to stand behind people who are struggling to have even a minimal sort of democracy. And I think we have to find ways to do that. And I can't say that, you know, I could tell you that there's something easy to do, but I do think that, you know, in some ways, what Trump did by accident was make us all much more aware, both how fragile and how necessary and essential democracy is. And we just have to keep at it, I believe. Whether we will succeed, I can't say for sure, but I think it's possible. I mean, I'm only slightly older than Biden, so wish him very well, but I think I won't be around necessarily long enough to see a victory in this. I hope you are. I hope so, too. You know, I was wondering, given all of this, you've mentioned a few things that we can do, you know, pay attention to where we pay attention choose to think about those who might not be getting attention. What are other things? Because as you say, sometimes when we think about the whole world and all of them, there is so much going on at any given time, we can get very easily overwhelmed and choose to tune it all out if it doesn't affect us, which is something that we see in racism sometimes. That's why it's sometimes harder to get people who are in privileged positions to really engage in internal reflection and see what's going on and put in the work around us. So what can every one of us do do differently? Or what structures can we champion that need to change? I mean, is it as simple as give your children really good attention so they don't feel like they're starved for it and go out there? Like, what are things we can do? Well, that's a very, very tough question because, I mean, there are lots of little things we could do. You know, when you say give your children really good attention, that can also backfire in that, you know, the child can feel like a star and feel like they love that attention and want more and more and more of it. Or they can feel like, you know, I am very well satisfied. I have the attention I need. Each child is different, of course. And so I do think that one of the key things we have to do is recognize each person as an individual, as an individual who is subject to change. I mean, I'm about to become a grandfather for the first time, and I'm excited about that. And, you know, 
the parents have done the usual thing of having sonograms and so forth and have told us that the child will be uh, female, I guess. You know, what I said was, you know, don't put them in a box. It's too early to know how they may feel later on. And, you know, that was something nobody would have thought of a while ago. But the key thing there is not simply paying attention to the child, it seems to me, but really going deeper into who they are and how best to help them become a good person, which is a very hard question. And, you know, many parents work very hard at that and fail. It's, there's no, as far as I know, magic formula for even something that simple. But instead, I think, I hope that there becomes an effort to really promote being sincere and really listening. And and those are very hard things. And, you know, I'm sure there's more that I just don't know that I hope you and others will come up with even better, or I shouldn't say even better, but better answers. And I wish you and your generation a lot of luck. And I definitely appreciate your sincerity in asking these questions. I mean, I wish... The fact that the attention economy and the ideas of too much information started back in the days of Xerox and photocopying Mm -hmm. makes me think that maybe the idea of too much information has been around for a really long time and there's no way to really unwind that, Mm -hmm. but that there's got to be a healthier human way forward. Well, I completely agree with that. And I think, I mean, one of the things I have found very helpful for me is at least somewhat the ability at times to just read a book. I guess you can see I've read a lot of books, but, you know, a novel or whatever. And at the same time to not be too focused on trying to get attention. You know, in some ways, I feel I've been very frustrated in trying to do exactly that, like writing my novel and then sending it out to literary agents who turned it down and so forth. You know, we all have had experience of not being heard or not being seen for who we wanted to be. And to take that in, in the sense of, well, that's everybody else's experience too. And, you know, just holding with that. And to some extent, I think perhaps just as, you know, many of us are able to avoid eating everything we would want to eat, even in this a pandemic. I'm not entirely, but somewhat, you know, just saying, I could reach for that attention, but I will not. I could, you know, just as I will not have a second hamburger or whatever it might be. And, you know, I think we can somewhat learn to do that. And, you know, I do think one thing people often say about very young children is they are attentive to others quite early on. They do realize that other people have needs and that's important to them. And they want to share, they want to hand things out or or something like that. And to value that in other people, to value their willingness to share and try to make it an important value early on. I mean, I can't say I'm a very good teacher, but I think that's what we have to try to, to teach. We have to try to show by example and things like that. And, you know, there, as you say, there's no getting out of the fact that attention feels good. 
You know, that's another thing I guess I haven't said, but it's a very real thing. You know, only a few times in my life I've been speaking before hundreds of people for some reason or another. And each time there was a high, you know, it just feels like, as I've said, everybody's giving you all this attention and you yourself are enlarged, elevated or magnified as the Roman Catholic Church would have it in a way. Although they were speaking about magnifying the Lord, but you magnify the priest or whoever is up there. And, you know, we can't ignore that good feeling. I think we just have to struggle through it. And it may be a very, very hard, very long-term struggle. I mean, it may, some people think it will take 50 years. It might take 10 years. It might take 500. I don't know. It's part of changing who we are in subtle ways. Love what you're hearing? Follow us at the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to get our fresh new insights on how you can help dismantle systemic racism one conversation at a time every Wednesday. Do you love learning via visuals? Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast and at Twitter at DWW Podcast. And do you want us to keep making good work? Support our Patreon and keep an eye out for opportunities to use our webinars, DEI consulting work, and more if you want us to help bring change into your own spaces.